All right, here we are again with episode 15 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today my guest is Keith Cutton. I knew the name Keith Cutton before, but it wasn't until I began my background research for the Rod Whitman podcast, Keith's been one of Whitman's primary associates for about a decade, that I fully became aware of what a multi-talented designer he was. In addition to running projects for Whitman, he's worked alongside Bill Core and his crew, Jeff Mingay, and several other architects. He's also an accomplished shaper, artist, land planner, speaker, and a leading scholar who speaks, as you'll hear, as fluently and authoritatively on golf course architecture as any young historian in the business. To the extent that golf courses are going to continue to be built and remodeled in the coming decades, expect Cutton to be among the vanguard of designers who will have the greatest influence on the direction of the art. A few months ago, I read an interview he gave during which he mentioned a book he had coming out about the evolution of golf course architecture. The thoughts he articulated about the effects of modernism on golf design in the post-World War II years and the way societal and cultural changes affect the architecture of any given time period mirrored ideas I'd been developing and even talking about on this podcast. So I wanted to invite him on to talk about his book, his own thoughts on design in the industry, but also to specifically flesh out the topic of how and why golf design went through what some call the Dark Ages beginning in the late 1940s. The goal was not so much to redeem the golf courses of that era, or even define it, but to put that period of history in a proper context so we can analyze it intelligently rather than derisively, or at least so you can be derisive intelligently. We definitely covered that, although there's much, much more to be said about it. We discuss his book and different architectural eras, and toward the end he walks us through a fascinating artistic awakening in late 19th century England that had direct implications on the golden age of architecture in America. If you like the academia side of all this, you'll find a lot to chew on there. It was a robust back and forth, so let's go ahead and get into the talk. Here it is, me chatting with Keith Cutton. Enjoy. So you're just outside of Toronto, right? Yeah, I'm about uh, an hour and a bit west of the city uh-huh. in Cambridge. Right. So what do you do all winter? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the last few years I've been, um, this past winter I've been working on the book, obviously. Prior to that, for the last three and a half years, I was doing a master's. So I actually went back to school after about 10 years of working with Rod. And uh, so that kept me busy for a few years. But uh, prior to that, I've been down to North Carolina in the winter to do work. Um, I had some offers to go over to Europe and work with Frank Pont, but that didn't quite work out. He had a job in Germany that I was slated for, but uh, didn't end up happening. So obviously, there's not a whole lot to do in Canada in the winter, except for, you know, plan for the the next year's work. Right. But um I do do all the graphic work for both Rod Whitman and Jeff Menge. So that keeps me fairly busy. Um, and my wife and I, we now have twin 17 month old boys. So, oh, wow. Um, so that, that's, that, that's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'd be, that'd be the main thing. I mean, you know, given that I'm in design build, I am gone quite a bit during the summer. So it's nice to have that, time off in the winter where I can, especially now I can be home with the, with the family. And, you know, when I'm not work when I'm not working on the book, try to spend as much time with them as I can. Oh man. So, yeah. Um, 
twins twins are another level i've got two kids um they're about a year and a half apart and i i'm you know i don't know what to do with them but you know we have a lot of friends (laughs) with twins too that's uh that's really intense but really amazing it's good that you get to be home with them all winter you know or most of the winter and kind of connect and fill up with love before you head out back on the road yeah exactly i mean you know it's uh it's i love my job and I don't know a better way to build a golf course than don't to, you have to be there in my opinion. So it's tough now that they're here and I want to be home with them. You know, thank God for Skype and FaceTime and stuff like that. Cause you know, um, it'd be a lot harder, I think without that, but you know, Rod and I have worked out an agreement now and um, I'm, you know, I've been with him for over 10 years and it's uh, I'm kind of his right hand man, project manager. I do presentations, budgeting, everything for him. Um, so he's quite accommodating when it comes to time off if I need it. You know, he knows he knows we all work hard for him. So uh, he's been quite good with that, especially when the boys were born. You know, we were in the middle of a uh, full blown construction project out in. Uh, St. Andrews, New Brunswick, and into a, a fairly complicated area where we were hammering rock. And I just, he knew I needed the you know, month and a bit off, you know, right at the peak of that process. So it was, uh, he's, he's been great through the whole thing and he still continues to be right. Yeah. That way. So, um, but like you said, it's, uh, it doesn't make up for time at home. So it's nice to have the, the winters where I can actually be for a more prolonged period of time and um you know my boys can get to know my <laughs> face a little bit better so when i am gone it's not like who's this guy yeah they'll, they'll so, be out uh, running projects with you on site before you know it get them on the on the dozer and the excavator <laughs> and have- oh, exactly i'm just trying to build a team yeah so <laughs> do they have like like do you give them like little trucks to play with already you know like little uh construction vehicles training them early <laughs> Oh yeah, they've got like little excavators and little uh, little dump trucks and little dozers and uh, and they're all cat brand too. It's amazing <laughs> how much you can actually go and pick up. But I didn't even buy it for them. It was their grandparents that bought most yeah, of it that stuff. Is. So. It's, let the grandparents yeah. buy it. That's definitely the way to go. Oh, exactly. It's coming one way or the other. Right. Don't spend your own money on it. No, and you know, if we bought stuff, it would just sit there and you know we just add to the piles of yeah. toys we already yeah, have just, it's so, just more stuff you know, that you'll be offloading in about two years exactly yeah we learned that pretty quickly yeah. so what were you doing <laughs> down in north carolina out of curiosity uh i actually when i was so when i was doing my master's i took uh about well three years off that i was sort of concentrating on it i did it part-time so it actually took me five years but um I was working with, I took time off from Rod and I worked as a project manager for a contractor that's based in Guelph. Um, I wanted to see sort of the other side of the business and see what it was like building, doing the traditional architect contractor model. Um, So the company I worked with was TDI International, who are one of Canada's biggest contractors, at least in Ontario. And they're fairly well established in the U.S. as as well. They're actually bigger in in the U.S., and um, they had a project down in uh, North Carolina in Asheville, uh, Biltmore Forest. It was a Brian Silva renovation. Mm-hmm. 
of uh, the Donald Ross course right, there, yeah. and I was I was one of the project managers that uh, got to go down to that, and uh, I mean it was great. I, I I worked out there was basically what they do in the winter is TDI is so spread out in the summer, and then the winters they kind of just merge their project managers together into like some sort of A team that tackles some you know whatever winter jobs they have to keep all the guys busy. So really, it's you know if you're a winter job, you get a lot more skill on site, which is great. But as a project manager, usually I'm doing for them. I was doing everything. I was shaping. I was managing men. So you're running around with your head cut off. So you're working seven days a week. But I took that job knowing the the setup that it was going to be, and I, I worked out a five day work week. And all I did on the weekends was travel. You know, uh, and what a place to do it. Like I I spent entire weekends at Pinehurst and a friend of mine, Kyle France was doing, uh, just wrapping up the mid pines, uh, renovation that he did there and spent time there and went to old town. And I, th- I think I played, I visited old town six times. Well, really, you know, yeah. It, yeah, it was, I was obsessed with that place when I was down there. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did a, I was so obsessed with it. I did a, uh, a routing plan for it just to study, the routing and uh, the the contours and elevation changes out there. Mm. And um, it's actually, I didn't mean it to do this. I actually sent it to Bill Coor as a gift because this is turning into a long story, but during my th- uh, thesis, he, re- he gave me some uh, responses to questions that I asked him and he, he's not computer savvy. So he hand wrote no, all these not. answers yeah. <laughs> and they were lost in the mail. I, I just, I, when they showed up to me, I had an empty envelope without his notes in oh, it. Man. So I, ca- I called Bill and he was like, um, uh, I'll have to, you know, can you please redo these for me? And he was nice enough. He said, I think I still have my notes, so I'll do that. So if you know any, anything about Bill Core, you know that Old Town and Perry Maxwell were hugely influential to him. So when he had to do this twice for me, I sent him sort of a, um, a canvas style printing of the plan I'd done as a thank you. Uh, he liked it so much that he showed it to uh, the club there at Old Town, and it's now hanging in their bar. Is that right? So they did a huge, yeah, they did a huge uh, printing of it. And, you know, I didn't, I think I spent maybe a day and a half on it. It wasn't, but it's, it was old school. So it wasn't all drawn up and colored. It was just very sort of black and white sort of pen and ink uh-huh. style. So that's, uh, yeah, I was, so that's pretty cool that that's hanging there. But uh, that's quite yeah, an just, honor. Yeah, that place has been around the, for a uh, while, and uh, a lot of people come and look at that. And then there you are, right in in the clubhouse. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it was just, just kind of weird because I didn't have anything to do with the uh, the core Crenshaw renovation there, but um, it was unbelievable property, so, and you could see that going in. So it was definitely worth the. You know, I, for what I contributed to the the actual job I was doing down there was quite minimal compared to what I got out from out of it from uh, from touring around North Carolina. Yeah. You mentioned when you work with Rod Whitman, the various things that you'll do on site and, and for him during the course of a project. I was going to ask you about your artistic side. Like, do you consider yourself a good artist? But I think you just answered that. You must. If your artwork's out there hanging in public, you must have a, a little bit of, of a talent for that. Yeah, my my dad growing up was, uh, you know, I I consider what I'm doing now a result of my two biggest mentors growing up, which is my dad and my grandfather. My grandfather was obsessed with golf, 
um, he was he was English and he went over to St. Andrews numerous times when I was growing up and would always bring me back stuff. But my, my dad was a environmental scientist with the Ministry of Environment for 40 years, specializing in insects and pesticides, and actually was working on the pesticide ban here in Ontario at the end of his career. So I got to see the insects that how it affected golf you know the the sort of policy framework that civil servants have to deal with and really the ins and outs of the legislative system so that was very interesting growing up but he was an artist and he always was he was pen and ink and uh oil painting and acrylic and so growing up i was my art projects were all and science projects were always the best in school because i had that influence from my dad and that always stuck with me. Like um, I, I've always tried to be on the artistic side, even though a lot of my background now requires me to do a lot of it on the computer. So I try to merge the two worlds, if that makes sense. But um, yeah, I do. I luckily I get to use a lot of my skills for for Rod and Jeff Mingay. I make those two guys look good, or at least I try. So it's kind of like a new medium or way to, for golf artists to express themselves is through these kind of really cool routing maps that I see you you do them Riley Johns is known for them there are other people who have a real talent for that as a consumer I think that's a those are those are really pieces of art to be able to look at a routing map of a golf course that you love that's artistically rendered in a beautiful and evocative way is a skill and it's it's a commodity is that maybe that's like the new golf art the new form of modern golf expression is these like artistically rendered routing maps yeah i think it i think it is i mean i don't see it as a commercial venture i guess it is in a way it might when you be. see it as it a be. as a, it is when you consider it it's a um it's a, it's a sales pitch it's something you're giving to your client to get them to give you quite a bit of money to do work typically you know we're doing these things typically quite early in a job um, as a master plan, conceptual plan moving forward. But then it's something that you need to, the way we work, we tell the client, it's not going to look like this. And we're going to, I'm going to change this 15, 20 times as this progresses to match what we're doing in the field. So I've done, I think I'm on my sixth version now of a master plan um, for our work at the Algonquin. Mm -hmm. And We've got seven greens there. We've re redone the routing, so there's two new holes, but the rest is really just a renovation. But still, it changes that much in the field that I'm continuously changing that, which is why I merge sort of the hand-drawn technique with uh, the computers now, because you need to be able to change it. I use a drawing tablet, so it's something that it looks hand-drawn, but it's something that the way I set it up on the computer um, it's quite editable. So, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, uh, we, we, there still needs to be an economy of design when it comes to even that, you know, I can't be spending too many hours doing something like that. It still needs to look very, you know, high quality for our clients, but, uh, uh it's just the way we yeah. work. It needs to be, it needs to be, uh, I think, alterable. I think you'd be surprised that if that there's a market out there for well-known golf courses, these uh, maps that you guys do. You know, if you look back on the routing maps that Donald Ross or McKinsey did, they have a exactly. they have a beauty to themselves. They're in their simplicity, but it's it's pen and paper. And you know, you see these these full kind of full colored, almost 
point of view references to a routing map? I don't know. I think you'd, I think I'd buy some if, if they ever came to market. I think others would too. Well, yeah, and it's something that I'm obsessed with. Like you can you can look at those plans and you instinctively know if you've seen a few of them who did them. Yeah, like Mackenzie's watercolors versus you know even Simpson's drawings. Um, you know Ross's style of just the way he shows contour and elevation change. They're very distinctive. And it's, it almost parallels, you know, their work in the field. It's got a distinctive uh, feel or look to it. And I think that that is, it's all part of the, the package they presented. And I think that's something that's coming back. Uh, it's, it's part of the full artistic package that we, we offer now because um, it, it is something where your, you know, picture doesn't necessarily show everything. So even if you get some, and there's some incredible photographers out there now that are doing, um, you know, exceptional work. Uh, Evan Schiller and uh, John uh, Cavalier just come to mind based on Twitter. But um, there's still something special about seeing a full routing plan and understanding how the holes sort of fit together. Right. Uh, we mentioned uh, the guys you've worked with, and I was going to see if I can get you to give us a, a little bit of a, a psychological profile on them. Not really, but I am always am interested to see. Uh, they have different personalities, and they're different people. I'm always interested to get uh, another glimpse of them. What did, what's the thing that you take away from working with Rod the most? Uh, just probably the, the biggest thing is the need to be there on site. It was something that was made very clear to me early that, you know, when the first day I showed up, I got to watch Rod at Sagebrush shape the first green uh, five times in one day. You know, he, he, he built something, I'd look at it, and it would look perfect. You'd squint and stare at it, and you could just, you know, it was so finely done that if you squinted, it looked like there was grass there, and you could go play it. But then he come off it with the dozer, go back in the fairway, stare at it for half an hour sometimes. And then you see him go back onto the green and to this beautiful surface that he just tracked in and dig the dozer blade in and just destroy it and, and rework it. And then he'd do that again and come off and look at it again. You know, he, he had no plans. He wasn't working to something preconceived. He was trying to fit it to the land and, Every time he stepped off it with another version, you went, that's better. And by the time it was done, it was just like, wow. You know, that just, that looks like it's been sitting there forever. And to allow somebody else to do that and not have the freedom to do it yourself. Um, you know, I'm supposed to be, as the architect, whoever it is, is supposed to be the most, most knowledgeable on site. I just can't see doing it any other way. And, you know, that was made very obvious to me on day one. And it's become a lot more obvious since then about all the subtle changes and considerations and little nuances of every site we've been on. And, you know, just something so random is um, even an accident on site with something falling over, um, something dumped in the wrong spot that can lead to something creative. Um it's just it, it's that 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 would be the biggest thing. It's just being there and the sort of design build model that uh, and allowing for sort of the site to permeate you over time and to learn from it and to sort of 
you know, build off of it and allow it to inspire mm-hmm. you. And and Rod and Bill Coor are friends, but they're different, very different people as well. How would you describe Bill Coor's management style, and what do you take away from him that's different than what you've learned with Rod? See, people people think they're very different, but they're they're both true gentlemen in the the biggest sense of the word. Um, probably two of the most humble people in this industry that you will meet. Uh, in my opinion, two of the most talented, although they do approach it in different ways. Rod being with a bulldozer and Bill sort of being the uh, perhaps the greatest editor of golf course design there is right now and how he sort of relates to his guys, his vision. But they both have that, that humbleness to them and ability to accept other people's input and i think that's the biggest thing that's not really understood about why golf is sort of in this resurgence right now it's the design build method is great we you know we always preach about being there on site and allowing the site to inform us like i just talked about but it's the teamwork aspect of the way we work and the ability of those two men specifically to take input from the guys that they trust on site and allowing that to evolve into something that maybe they hadn't originally foreseen, but half the time it turns out better. Like, um, they just, they don't have that, that opinion that they know everything, which I think actually in the end transfers much better into the ground. And then what about Jeff Mingay? You've done some projects with him, um, and he's he's younger than than Bill and Rod. What did what did you take away from him? What is what is he what is he like on site? Uh, Jeff, there's no other way to say it, but he's an encyclopedia when it comes to the history of golf architecture and its architects and courses. Uh, he really is a historian. I mean, his 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 undergrad from Windsor was was in history and he taught me sort of the other side of it. And Ian Andrews would be another influence here that really showed me the importance of understanding the intent of an architect, but also where that was in their portfolio of work is assuming that an artist stays the same throughout their career is just very foolish uh, in my opinion. And having a deep respect for the history of this game, um, that that knowledge, that just uh, inherent ability to pull reference out of his mind um, is something that still challenges me to be better at that. Um, and probably is one of the direct contributors to the emergence of my book uh, would be to dive deeper into the history and and really push myself to find those deeper connections as to why things happened. Well, we're definitely going to get into your book in a minute, but uh, there's one guy, one more guy I want to ask you about, and that's Doug Carrick. And you did a few projects with him and he hasn't come up on this podcast, at least anyway, I always found him to be a very interesting architect, more kind of like the Tom Fazio 
architect of style and visual flourish and with a very high aesthetic eye and viewpoint of, of golf design. What's your takeaway? What's he like? Uh, a very nice man. Um, and, and you can you can see why clubs love to work with him. Very, very kind, soft-spoken, and, um, you know, just, just well-mannered. But um, I, I, I do agree with you. I, I don't know if I directly compare him to Fazio, but, um, you know, we do have two, two of our biggest designers here in Canada, Doug Carrick and Tom McBroom, right. um, were actually disciples of Robbie Robinson, who was mentored by Stanley Thompson. So that, that is one of the biggest le- uh, lineages here in Canada and why, these, why those two men uh, have done the majority of work over the past 20 years here in Canada. Um, but what a lot of people don't understand about uh, Stanley Thompson and his relationship with Robbie Robinson is Stanley Thompson really didn't delegate much to his guys. He was a control freak when it came to um, on-site. And basically, the creative output was Stanley. Robinson did a lot of the details, especially when it came to uh, some of the, the later work, uh, like Highlands Links, which were a lot longer projects where Robinson was out on site doing the finishing. Um, but those were very tough times, and that rubbed off on Robinson to the point where a lot of his later work in, here in Canada was in very remote parts of the country and on shoestring budgets. So the effect that Robinson would have had on those two uh, um, would have been much less than what they saw externally, which would have been, you know, Trent Jones Sr., Junior, Reese, uh, the the biggest architects on the planet at that time that they would have been heavily influenced by. They would have been more influenced, in my opinion, by the, the, you know, the modernist uh, philosophy and how to practice as a golf architect. Uh, And you do, you see that in, in their work. Um, they use a contractor, they sit in an office, they develop plans. And uh, a lot of the time, you know, with, with me being, like you said, I was involved with them at Westmount. I was lucky enough that I pushed quite hard to have a little bit of creative freedom, uh, on some of the new bunkers we were doing there. But if anything was existing, you know, I was waiting on a paint line and there wasn't a whole lot of, once that paint line was there for a bunker or green or you know, if I had a plan for a green, there wasn't there wasn't much change in the field. There wasn't a lot of adaptation. If uh, if if I felt something needed to be changed, um, you know, there was there was that aura that my word is is final. So, and I do I see that it was a lot of it was aesthetic. I'm like, there there wasn't that deeper level of nuance to the design that I really felt was was missing and. When I worked with him at Westmount, that was a project that I fought for when I was with TDI, and because I'd actually I'd worked there on the the maintenance staff in my undergrad when I was at Waterloo, so it was a place that was quite close to me. Um, it was really the place that you know blew my mind open as to what a golf course could be. It was just incredible ground, and just prior to that, I'd been to the university. I'd, I'd started at Guelph at that point. And I'd been through the archives there where they had the Stanley Thompson archives and all his plans. And I found the Westmount plan. And a lot of what Thompson did is he would draw 
the bunker schemes to how he envisioned the course long term. And a lot of his work, especially at Westmount, Banff, Jasper, um, they were they were later closer to the depression where some clubs just couldn't afford to do everything. So his vision might have been more grandiose than they could afford at the time. So and Westmount was a prime example of that where he they didn't build it to the extent of what his drawings were. So I saw you know, I, I sort of saw this Carrick renovation coming up and had this plan and he was like, you know, we could do this. We could we could fulfill Thompson's vision for the site, or at least somewhere close to that. And I, I think it was a bit of a miss. It was, uh, and it's a place that I love dearly, but it was, um, I don't believe Doug ever looked at that plan or even made the effort to, to find it. Mm. Um, he put his spin on that, that project and that's, uh, um, you know, that's something yeah. that I, I can't fault him for if that's what the client wanted, but it's not how, I've developed a philosophy to work with a site. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, that would have been 2012. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I mean, a guy like that's been, you know, working one in one way his entire career and had incredible success and had been getting incredible budgets and great clients and winning awards. It, you know, there's a, probably a little bit of, of um, stubbornness or hubris that, that, kind of comes in at that point in your career when you've been doing something one way and now you're going to go into basically like a, a revitalization of, of a, of an old plan or a restoration. It's a, uh, it's, you know, it's hard to say, maybe it's like teaching an old dog, new tricks. It just wasn't going to happen. It, it, and I think that's, I think we're seeing a lot of that now. There's, um, there's a lot of those signature designers that were used to practicing a certain way for so long. You know, they see the writing on the wall. Times are changing. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that going on right now where they're trying to break the mold a little bit, but still staying in their comfort zone. You mean like they're going after renovation restorations, but still applying their new design, new build model to it? Yeah, I see I see Nicholas's guys doing this. I see Palmer's guys going after it. And even, you know, um, Gary Player and, a lot of the, especially the pros, but there's a lot of other guys um, like Carrick too now, McBroom. They're they're seeing what they're Crenshaw, seeing Doak, and these seeing guys. Seeing where the work is too. Seeing where the work is and what clients are, you know, clients are stupid. They see what's working elsewhere and what the media buzzwords and everything are going on with these projects. And that kind of dictates what the next wave is. Um uh, and if they're not jumping on that bandwagon, they're going to get left behind. But my feeling is there's a deeper there's there's a there's a deeper level of detail that's going on with the best work right now, and that's because we're working on site and just obsessed with these details. And I don't think the traditional architect contractor model, no matter what they say, they're trying to do to mimic. Um, new trends. I, it's just, it's like you say, it's it's visually there, but once you enter that picture, it kind of falls apart. And I think that's something that needs to be understood more about golf architecture going forward. Is you know, it's not just about the pretty picture. It needs to 
it needs to uh, work on a deeper level. Well, this is a good point to get into your book. I I guess the working title is the evolution of golf architecture, and yep, and it, it, I'm assuming that it is exactly what it sounds like. But there's a, a and anybody who's been listening to this podcast knows that I've been kind of talking about this theme for a while. And in my own mind, I've been exploring it and turning it over and trying to understand it better. But this idea that after World War II, we went into this long, dark era of golf course architecture. If you look at the products, the golf courses that were built then, there's definitely something different about them than there was to the you know the great courses of the 1920s. And there's often a dismissal of, of the architects and the architecture. And I think what I want to talk to you about is, is why. And I think, you, I think you're of the belief, like I am, that it's not that these architects were, were hacks or not talented. They were responding to a, a different environment. And maybe that's not to justify the end product, because if, if you don't like the golf course, you don't like the golf course. You know, we're not saying that these, you know, are, these are on the same you know, level as, as Seminole or Cypress Point. But there's a reason why the golf courses turned out this way. And I w- wonder if you could kind of go into that a little bit and ex- explain what the, what the situation in people's lives were in 1946, 1947, 1948, and, and how that stimulated this diversion where golf architecture went away from the classical stylings of the 1920s yeah like you like you said it's um a lot of the 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 whole reason for my book is most of the literature on golf architecture in my opinion um looks at the history of it in silos it looks at individual practitioners so architects and their portfolios of work there's very little that's been written that looks at it more long term over time and nothing really looks at it as to the external influences on these uh, it, on, on the biggest practitioners, the most influential practitioners, or even how they really related to each other uh, and or influenced each other with friendships, mentorships, or anything else. So when you talk about that post World War II era, you have to understand that there really was a break in the knowledge of you know the passing of knowledge between mentor and, and protege there was a 15 year span there that included the great depression world war ii where the focus was not on golf there was some you know minor uh projects because of some of the public funding programs that were going on that were happening just prior to, prior to world war ii but a lot of the bigger projects were bigger infrastructure projects and that's where most of the money went so, and that was sort of the tail end of many of these, um, you know, Mackenzie, Maxwell, a lot of these guys who were sort of at the tail end of that, um, that lineage, Stanley Thompson being Canadian, their, their work, it started pre-World War I. So these guys were at their tail end of their careers. And following World War II, um, if we can get back to the public perception is that they'd just been through this the second world war that they've been through they've been through some very harsh times with the depression world war ii is a lot more real for people than world war one just with the media and everything that it, it really brought it home plus you know in america with pearl harbor happening um it was real on the home front so 
following World War II, a lot of people, this whole modernist movement came forward where the outlook was to the future and to what America do, could do next and, you know, opportunities. And there wasn't that reverence to what had happened previously. And it opened the door to really the only people left standing which was the two the two big emerging names would have been uh, Robert Trent Jones Sr. and Dick Wilson, who really had very differing backgrounds. If you look at uh, Dick Wilson first, you know, with his experience at Marin, he was it was a lot more um, traditional in nature, but he was very much handicapped by his um, issues with drinking, which really limited his. I think, influence on the industry overall. But if you look at Trent Jones Sr., uh, he really played off of his relationship with Stanley Thompson and the partnership that they had prior to, to World War II. But the biggest thing that goes unrecognized, two big things, the first thing is that he was educated at Cornell, where he would have been uh, exposed to all the emerging modernist trends uh, especially with landscape architecture and engineering that were getting away from, um, you know, being in the field, design, build, sort of being the on-site person to more of an office nature where you detach yourself from the project and you were professional and you had people do the work for you. So that's, that's number one. But number two is the relationship that, Trent Jones Sr. and Stanley Thompson actually had was not what he really portrayed it to be. Um, you know, their relationship was, was, was started out of necessity during the Great Depression, and they really didn't do a whole lot of work together. Stanley Thompson actually really went out of his way um, you know, obviously he had the opportunity, or he had the, the vision that he this helping Trent Jones Sr. out would lead to work in the, the States. But um, when the Depression was really at its worst, Thompson kept Jones afloat by bringing him to Canada and having him, you know, visit and do consulting work at Banff and Capilano when those Banff was wrapping up, but uh, Capilano was just being started. And this really seemed to foster a good relationship between them. But as the Depression kept going, uh, Stanley looked elsewhere, you know, south to Brazil and South America, other areas of South America uh, for work. And when he cabled Trent Jones Sr. to come down to help him out, Trent Jones basically ignored his uh, cable and his telegram and because he was pursuing some of these other government grants that were going on at the time. And a, a rift started coming between them. It also didn't help, you know, I don't want to be all one-sided here, it didn't help that Stanley Thompson um, renegotiated some of their arrangements and brought his brother in to take a bigger share of right. the prof, yeah. the minimal prof, profits that they did yeah. have. But Trent, so it wasn't Trent Jones took credit for a lot of work under the Thompson banner that he, he did. didn't actually work on. He, he did, and that's where I was going to go next with it. Uh, in '38, he came out with a, bro a brochure mm -hmm. um, 
that basically took credit for every project that Thompson ever did. Um, and the, you know, this brochure, which is written about in a difficult par by Hanson. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy for clients to fact check that back in 1938 or 39, when he puts that out, it just made him sound like he'd been the, uh, leading architect in the Western hemisphere for a decade. Exactly. And the, the, that's what I'm saying. There was nobody around to contradict him. You know, there was, there was in 38, but then, you know, literally the next, within a couple years, World War II happens, the depression set its peak in 39, like there's nobody really there. There's no industry there to debate him. And I actually have a copy of, uh, of his 38 brochure that, you know, it's, it's a thick book and it's called Golf Course Architecture by Robert Trent Jones. And the only reference to Thompson in it is the very last page where there's an address that says Thompson and Jones, but the phone number, the address, it's the American office, which is, if you, you know, if you wrote it, you, all you get is, uh, is Jones. Right. So that when Thompson found out about that, that was really the end of of the relationship. Well, there's no doubt that, that Trent Jones was a master marketer. I mean, he understood that part of it uh, as well as anybody of that era, probably in any business uh, of how to market and how to sell. But going back to the just the climate of the post-war, I, I think it's really hard for us right now, you know, my, myself, Generation X, millennials, even baby boomers, to really understand the psychological freight that the average person carried with them coming out of World War II. I mean, we think of wars that are carried out now and they're they're distant and we don't relate to the military and there aren't clear goals and there's sort of these nebulous affairs that have a lot of political implications to them. But, you know, World War II, as you mentioned before, was a lifestyle, uh, it, it dominated the lifestyle of this country. I mean, people were asked to make sacrifices. Entire industries shifted production modes to help the war effort there was a time where americans and i'm sure canadians too didn't know if their way of life was going to continue the 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 outcome was still up in the air nobody knew how it was going to end and you carry that around with you for a number of years you know not just a few months but for for years on end and you get word back of like thousands of people are dying millions are dying uh these great armies are moving, these navies are moving around the globe. I mean, it is all encompassing. And you come out of that, and prior to that, the Great Depression, where you have another type of existential uh, emptiness to you, financial, you don't know if you can provide for your family, you don't know where your work's going to come from. So you have about 15 years of this threat of either financial or literal annihilation. And then you come out, and it's over. You definitely want to look through the to the future going back so the, the question is well why didn't golf when it started up again why didn't it go why didn't they pick up where they left off in 1929 nobody wanted that the clients didn't want that the people with money didn't want that the the entire consumer culture there's a, a housing shortage everything needed to be new uh, what what people wanted was convenience. They wanted functionality. They wanted to put their faith in in uh, in science. They, we had new technologies. We wanted to be modern. We wanted to escape the past. So it's that's the 
that's the cultural reference point that Trent Jones and Dick Wilson and those early post-war architects were working in. They were responding to an environment that didn't want what their parents and grandparents had. Exactly. It's, you know, you have to look at golf architecture as, and it always has been, at the influence of society tastes and norms. And that's exactly what happened following World War II is the the social mindset shifted. It was looking forward. There was no reverence to what had happened. And they almost wanted to forget, and you can't blame yeah. them. You, you know, they, 15 years of just horror would have really put a negative, it didn't matter how great the 20s were, um, a lot of people from that post-World War II era didn't have a clear vision of of that time. And it, it, relating it strictly to golf, a lot had changed. Those Those clubs, you know, the beautiful pictures we see now because of the internet of the way these clubs like Cypress looked in the twenties, though it did not look that way following world war two, that, that, that club was completely, those golf courses were completely neglected and abandoned Mm -hmm. for at least six to 15 years. You know, mother nature has a way of changing things, you know, if they're maintained, let alone if focus is completely elsewhere. Uh, so there was no, nobody was looking at what the, what the previous uh, practitioners had written. There was no real evidence left of what they had done. Um, you know, some clubs remain, but even those were private. So for the general public, their idea of golf was altered. And society was pointing them in a different direction. So you can't, you can't blame Robert Trent Jones, Dick Wilson for pursuing that. Yeah, and it's the the irony, I guess, it's an irony is is that you know Trent Jones was did work in whatever capacity he did work with Thompson. He was familiar with that style of architecture. He was a big fan of Tillinghast and McKinsey. Uh, Dick Wilson worked for worked for Flynn, you know, who worked for Hugh Wilson. Correct. So he came these guys knew they were familiar with that style of design, but that kind of quaint architecture uh, that was built in the 20s and I call it quaint uh, by construction methods, not ideas. That nobody wanted that. Nobody was hiring architects to build uh, a handcrafted course where you are using, you know, shovels and pans and horses. You come out of World War II and now you have this industrialization of the construction side of the business and uh, and these basically new tools, this new science to use, that's what people wanted. That's what the architects were looking at, at, at using. And I think, would, would you agree that that ha- also, in addition to the cultural temperature, the, the science behind construction methods, when I say science, I mean the big machinery, that combined, those two things combined, starts to lead us down this path of uh, away from classic architectural principles as we now recognize them? Um, the one spot I think I would disagree with you is blaming 
the the tool and not the artist. Um, you know, there were there were heavy equipment being used at Augusta. Uh, Lido was built with heavy equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, Charles Banks was known as Steam Shovel. Like there were there were people operating pre World War Two that were using heavy equipment. Yet, I think the difference was the teams, the manpower that they could utilize, especially during the Great Depression, to add more hand-detailed elements to erase the use of those machines was the big difference. Um, I think post-World War II, that vanished. There was more of a you know, when you look at architecture and landscape architecture, so those two professions, which I do throughout the book, when you look at the influence and what happened in those industries, it, it was very, it was very similar. There was a a, cl- a cleanliness to design, a clarity of form, a functionality uh, in modernism that nature sort of got in the way a little bit for a while and the same permeated golf architecture there was almost a desire to have those those lines that the the blurriness that made that gave the golden age courses that sense of place that i think we all find still charming was a race and I don't think it was so much the equipment but how it was used how do you think and I'm on, we'll come back to the equipment but first I want to ask you this how do you think and I'm and now I'm talking like right after the war you know late 40s and into the you know the first half of the 50s how do you think Trent Jones and Wilson were on strategy I think the strategies were they were an evolution of what had happened before to use that that word but um, you know in in the book that we just referenced a uh, difficult par in before world war 2 um, there's quotes of jones writing his wife talking about a new form of golf architecture that would be better than the work of Mackenzie and Thompson. You know, he had already been developing in his head this idea of heroic golf. Um, You know, the, the introduction of water was, I think, during that era, a huge a huge change that didn't, it didn't affect, it had the same elements of what the, the golden age practitioners were trying to do with contour and sand and native areas, but was in my opinion, much more penal. You know, everybody talks about the, the tightening of courses and the use of bunkers at certain distances. And I understand, um, where that came from. That's a major, major with, criticism of this era that we're talking about. Yes. Oh, it's, and the issue there is that 
and I, I talk about this in the book, is this is really the key indication of that break in knowledge. So pre-World War II, they, they had these issues. You know, there was, you know, right from the very beginning, you had the Fetter go to the gutty perch a ball. You know, there was, in the hickory shaft, the steel shaft, like there, was, there was always evolution in the equipment technology that, that these practitioners were describing. And numerous writings by Bear and uh, Tillinghast and all sorts of these guys were, were talking about this and how to combat it through design. And their method was ground contour, width, and angles. Um, that was lost in that, that period of time, the Great Depression and World War II. And I think the, the biggest, they obviously learned certain things from their mentors, uh, that being Jones and uh, Wilson. But they had this prevailing ideology that permeated culture at that point that new, new ideas were better. And the, the, the application of or the design trend to tighten fairways and put bunkers at certain distances because that's how far the pros were hitting it was completely new. That was, that was their um, solution to a problem that had, in theory, been solved previously. And what I think we're seeing now is the realization that, you know, we shouldn't be designing for the 1%, but we can actually combat them with a lot of those theories that the golden age practitioners were talking about. So I think that answers your question. But what I'm trying to say is that really society's influence on them had them looking forward and trying to profess their own theories to reinvent the wheel that didn't need reinventing. Well, Trent Jones famously worked on Oakland Hills for the 51 Open, and that's, Correct. You know, at least according to lore, the I don't want to say the first time, but maybe the first time, at least for major tournament golf, he applied that approach of you know pinching in the bunkers at the landing area and, and pulling in the rough and making courses narrow and, and penal. I guess my question is, do you think that when we look at at courses by Dick Wilson and an RTJ and maybe a couple of guys who came shortly thereafter. And we look at their courses now and what we know about them. Are we getting an accurate picture of what they actually built? Now I know like I used Oakland Hills specifically because we do know that that happened for that particular course for that particular event. But when we say, okay, well, the fairways got narrowed, uh, you know, the, we, they pinched in the bunkers. Uh, it, is any of that, the narrowness, the result of, you know, tree growth, mowing patterns, club maintenance. Are we do we are we really judging them accurately on what they actually built in 1950? Uh, I don't think 100 percent. No, uh, I mean if you look at uh, pictures, there's there's a famous picture out there of uh, Hogan playing a bunker shot out of I forget the the hole he's playing, but it's during the 51 Open, and. The, the aesthetic on the bunker is much more rugged than it is now. Right. Like it, it would be something that would tie in with the current aesthetic that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So as far as the aesthetic Peachtree was the same. Values, Peachtree was built. Those 
Correct. The edges were pretty rough. Yeah. So, like, the aesthetic they were doing w- would have been maybe quite similar to um, their mentors, what, what they had learned from the Golden Age practitioners. But as far as changing the course to, to influence those players, that was specifically done for that event. Um, and it was well described, you know, you know, it's, it's well noted that Hogan made Jones famous with his line, you know, I brought this monster to his mm-hmm. knees and sort of made him a celebrity architect. And the focus from that point on became difficulty, which unfortunately had vast implications on all levels of golf courses. And again, I think the thing we're the thing we're learning now is diversity in presentation is key to this game. There shouldn't be for our you know it's easy for an architect to follow trends, and that's what these guys were doing. And I think this has plagued golf architecture since World War II. Is that everybody's willing to hop on the bandwagon instead of you know, except maybe for a few people that have obviously changed things, Pete Dye being one of them, to sort of stand your own ground and try something different. Do you think that, you mentioned a minute ago about Trent Jones and his use of water and how that was something that didn't exist in a large scale before he came. Do you think that the introduction of water into golf courses was inevitable, given that we were moving farther and farther away from city centers and building on pieces of land that probably needed to be irrigated or weren't naturally suited for land or is there an, or suited for golf? Or is there an alternate universe out there where had, you know, Trent and Dick not built so many water hazards that became photogenic and popular that we, you know, water would be eschewed on golf courses in general now? Yeah, it's it's something that so w- one of the one of these uh, examples that I use in the book is using Donald Ross at at Pinehurst. You know, I'm I'm jumping way back here, but if you look at early Pinehurst images, so course one and course two, there's a there's a there's a big geometric um, influence going on there there's 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 cross bunkers there's chocolate drops uh all sorts of stuff going on that you do not associate with donald ross now he did a he ventured up to chicago around 1911 and was the construction manager for harry colt at old elm and that was hugely influential on ross and his ideology after that changed. And he brought that back to Pinehurst. And one of the images that I'm thinking of that I actually have a picture, there's a postcard of it in my book, is a force carry over a body of water at, um, I believe it's uh, Pinehurst number one. Mm-hmm. And that is, when he returned, <laughs> yes, there's water near it needed to irrigate the core, especially at Pinehurst. There's, you know, it's pure sand. They needed they needed water, but that was those elements were removed by and large from the corridors of play and minimized because that's not what the Scots really saw as 
the ideal for a course. Water was something that, you know, with Lynxland was ever present. It was there, but it, unless you hit a terrible shot and ended up um, on the beach or in the water, typically it was off to the side. Now, what happened is as golf evolved in the post-World War II generation and um, was more visible on TV, especially at places like Augusta National with uh, the slow changes that happened there, um, the best elements of those courses weren't visible. The contour at Augusta is not visible. Uh, The contour at Oakland hills although that wasn't really on tv was not visible what, what the biggest issue is when we when golf hit the tv is that water became something that was quite obvious and it was that sort of do or die scenario that's fun to watch a professional contend with but when that diversity of all courses when that when that goes away and that enters the public sphere of golf architecture and is done, you know, to death on every course, you know, and then we wonder why, why there's pace of play issues now. Um, I think that that was, that was one of the huge mistakes that came out of that generation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you look back, uh, the reason I mentioned, uh, Pinehurst too, is the, the, at one time, the cross bunker was looked at as something that should never be used. I think we're learning now that these are all tools within a designer's toolbox. And to say that anything shouldn't be used is probably wrong. But to use all of one color is equally, <laughs> maybe worsely so, terrible right. practice. Yeah. And this is all part of that evolution and learning that, you know, golf, and I, I, I say this in the book, you know, if you, if you make everything bold, I love this sort of um, artistic saying, if you make everything bold, nothing's bold. So if you have water on every hole, I mean, that feat, that element just loses its power, it loses its... Um, ability to influence the golfer versus if you have this ebb and what was lost really in that era of Jones was the ebb and flow of the designs of the golden age. There's, there's a, on purpose, there are holes throughout some of the, throughout the best courses that are relatively easy or short or half par holes that Maybe be bunk- that maybe are bunkerless, but they're there either before or after a hole that hits you right in the face. And a lot of the practice too of, of those renovations that happened in the so-called dark ages now was getting rid of those holes and making everything heroic or bold, you know, just to and that that ebb and flow that. Um, I like how Mike Strantz called the roller coaster ride. You know, people like the highs and lows because it makes the highs all that bigger. Right. And I think that's the biggest issue with water, the overuse of it, 
the um, sort of the the blandness. It becomes one color. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Ian Ander, uh, Andrew was talking about that last week. Not only the roller coaster concept because he studied roller coaster, but the the lack at a certain point in time, the lack of those breather holes, that kind of that ability to exhale and then inhale and then exhale. Uh, and that's exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, I actually listened to uh, to your podcast there with my friend yeah, Ian. Right. And uh, well, yeah, I mean, he, he, is a, he, is a, he is an intellectual. Um, you know, he's one of those guys with his, if, if your listeners haven't gone to his podcast, that's something I've been uh, reading since I was, since before I even got with Rod. So he is, he's always thoughtful uh, and usually ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. So, but that, uh, that roller coaster ideology is something I actually saw in a video done by Mike Strantz. Um, I forget which course he was talking about at the time, but uh, it was near the end of his life and he described golfers as uh, as uh, attendees as patrons at an amusement park and everybody wants to ride the roller coaster right. yeah and that that stuck with me and you know reading books by Mackenzie and Ross and hearing about ebb and flow and half par holes and it just all clicked you know it, it makes sense so but it, it Ian's right. It's something that was completely lost. And it's one of those things, again, where I talk about this gap in knowledge. And one thing that comes out uh, very clearly in my book is the relationship between design practice and literature. And one thing, you know, everybody points to the equipment, and I don't think it is. I think it's, it's the artist itself and the vision I think more so as opposed to the um, emergence of new equipment or construction technologies, I think uh, because, you know, we're reverting now to traditional practices and we have more technology than ever. Um, I think it was really a loss in the literature and the fundamentals of design. Right. That, that created this difference. Yeah. Um, just kind of one more thing about this kind of this middle mid-century period we're talking about i'm wondering if you know we talked about how our perception of the of these courses was were that you know they're narrow and uh, it take we lost angles and width and some of these other nuances that the previous generation of courses had and if you go back and look at aerials of a lot of golf courses from the from 1950 1952 they're very different than they look now i mean a lot of these courses were built outside of cities and there were no trees on them so um I, I think I think we give we, we're not getting the clear picture as we said before. Just like if you go to an older club now that's a Donald Ross uh, design and it hasn't been renovated, and the fairways are narrow, the bunkers are out in the rough, trees are overhanging, and if you didn't know anything, you'd say, "Oh, well, Donald Ross was a hack." Well, that's not that's not the course that he designed. And I think there's a little bit of that to these post-war golf courses. That said, I'm wondering, do you see? a change happening like maybe in the late 50s, 60s, 70s where these modern ideas that Wilson and Jones were employing got even more sidetracked and we and the the things that don't work 
became abused even more because you get into this period in the really in the kind of the late second half of the 60s and in the 70s where a lot of the people who are coming into golf course design come from like land planning backgrounds and a lot of their work is designing courses within communities and how to you know you're juggling streets yeah. and uh, utilities and everything do you do you see a point in this curve where things get actually worse <laughs> if that makes any sense um yeah i think it was my issue with a lot of the courses that really weren't the 50s but maybe late 60s 70s was really the eradication of 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 contour and the ground game and a lot of courses that were overshaped the ground wasn't used heavy equipment like you know scrapers I, I've got nothing against bulldozers, but you bring a scraper in, you just obliterate the landscape. Um, I think the understanding of that golf is not an aerial game, that it should be, we should be considering what's played along the ground, um, was lost. And I think that that also transpired, not so much in the 50s, 60s, but once irrigation started happening wall to wall, um, that was something that minimized how far the ball would roll. And actually, I think in a way changed design as well. And designers weren't, weren't really cognizant of protecting that element of the game. And I think that's something that is being more brought back down. You hear the whole firm and fast, um, you know, mantra, but, um, I think more so than those other details that happen with the course. And I'm actually one to argue that like we talked about before, you know, you hear the, that, you know, specific fingers are being pointed at people for tightening golf courses, but there was an element that naturally happened with that during the great depression and world war two. when these courses weren't being maintained or there might've been one guy with a gang mower going out there mowing what he could. So some of the traditional mow lines that we see in these photos would have been erased mm -hmm. or altered prior to people coming in and tightening courses. So there obviously was an element of that going on. There was a you know conscious element, obviously, that we just talked about with 51 with, with Jones doing it on purpose and pinching holes in certain locations. But... If we talk, if specifically if we're talking about later, what changed? I think the overwatering of courses and just the eradication of of ground contour. One thing that was talked about in a book that I really like, um, Grounds for Golf by Shackelford, uh, they talk about the freeway school of design that sort of emerged in the seventies uh, as a way to sort of push people through. Yeah. Uh, golf courses and I think that was maybe more detrimental to the the quirkiness and the subtleties of design that really made those courses in the the golden age and and prior um, made them stand out now so much more yeah, that's a really good point i I've gone back and tried to recollect a lot of the, the books that I had when I was a kid, the golf books, and they were mostly picture books, but they're like, you know, the greatest golf courses in the world. And they're published in the, most of them are published in like in the seventies and the eighties. 
And you look at the, you just flip through and look at the pictures. It doesn't matter where it is. If it's not a Pete Dye golf course, it's amazing how flat and on grade everything is. The bunkers have absolutely no depth. There's almost no tie-ins between the greens and the surroundings. It's just the uh, everything just looks two-dimensional. It's uh, and it's striking considering the the age that we're in now, where everything is has so much movement to it everything that's being not everything but uh, you know everything that we hail as great now has so is such voluptuous contour and movement and everything is tied in and everything works together as a whole and there's so much variety in the ground uh, so it's i think that's i think that's such a stark difference as you just illustrated between wh- where we were and where we've come yeah and that's that's a conscious effort now you know, we as an industry have recognized that folly and what that does for the game. You know, a flat golf course really is only interesting to the person that hits it in the air and it lands, you know, it's, it's a game of lawn darts. For a, a wet, flat course, for somebody that's just starting the game or is older and can't hit the ball very far, is quite boring you know and we you know if we're talking about grow the game and retaining golfers we need to get people at a young age and we need to captivate them and that form of architecture just didn't do it and i think that's one of the issues now is you know those great courses were all private and you know the golf golf cart would be another element to it and the loss of that being the loss of the caddy program that kids didn't get to see that 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 style of course with ground contour and just that air that that perspective on the game yeah. was almost eradicated. Yeah, that's a good. And that's sad. To me. It's such a sad topic. It is. It is. But it's it's something that and you, you talk about you know these dramatic courses now with almost you know. You, there's just so much contour it's it's it is it's a conscious effort and tom doak might be one of the greatest proponents of that you know he has brought that element back i mean pete Dye did but if you look at his early work it's much more subdued he gradually stepped that up and up and up but i think it, i think it is it's something that's very good for golf and it's almost been this awakening in the industry since the late 80s when Doak or Crenshaw went off on their own and started doing their thing right and bringing these elements back because uh-huh. they saw what Pete was doing you know they saw these Scottish elements that were good um, they realized that they needed to go see these courses for inspiration and they did that um, you know, Tom Doak probably learned that more from Pete than anybody about going to see courses. And then Bill Corr has told me stories of he used to um, dog sit for the dies. And yeah, he told me would, that too. <laughs> yeah, he, he and he'd spend time in their libraries. Um, and Pete had just, and most people wouldn't know this, he had an extensive collection of golf architecture books, you know, from McKenzie to um, McDonald to uh, Thomas. He had 
everything. So Bill would go in there and just take notes. So the influence he had on those guys wasn't just the design-build approach. It was the reverence of looking back at what had been done. And that's really what had changed. And then the importance of the internet and Golf Club Atlas and these different forums for getting this information out there, that's what's been the, the slow change. Yeah. Um, but I find it interesting. Like I relate the, I relate this new change to sort of the pre-World War One era in England as a, it's, it's a very similar change where you have practitioners emerging that are, uh, have forums, you know, the emerging golf magazines at the time, um, over in England, country life being, you know, the preeminent early one, the, the era seemed very similar because I actually wrote an article in golf architecture magazine called uh, gatekeeper to the golden age. I'm not sure if you've read it, but, uh, hopefully some of your listeners have, and if they haven't, they should check it out. I think there's a link to it on your website, right? There is, yes. Cuttinggolf.com. Yes. And what it looks at is the influence of Horace Hutchinson, mm-hmm. who's one of Britain's or England's first like preeminent amateur golfer, um, and his role in affecting golf architecture and that leading to really the golden age in America. But what a lot of people don't understand is it didn't start in America. It started over in the heathlands of England, where the earliest practitioners of golf architecture were still trying to figure out how to take what was naturally, had naturally occurred on lynx land and transfer that to inland courses where the, where the populations were. And early courses were just rudimentary, and that was dubbed the Dark Age by Tom, Tom Simpson, Simpson and others. Right. Um, but when you look at it, a dark age to me is actually a loss of knowledge. You dive, you know, more so falling world war two would be a correct application of the word. What happened there was, uh, was just a continuation of knowledge that there was nothing that predated how to do it. Um, so what they were doing is they were using the construction practices of the time which were Victorian in nature because that's what the estate homes outside of London, that's how the landscaping was being done there. So the crews that they were using to build the golf courses were likely the same ones that were building these estates. And that's how they knew how to move earth. So that's what the golf courses looked like. And the, the, the pros at the time, you know, just were trying to get courses into the ground to allow people to play so they could sell clubs and teach golf. So they were rudimentary, but purposely so. Now, what happened when the Heathland courses emerged, um, you know, principally being Huntercombe and Sunningdale by Willie Park Jr., and then the work of um, Lowe and Patton at uh, Walking, you had two different things going on you had the application of strategic design at walking and you had the application of natural aesthetic at sunningdale and huntercombe now taking this back to my article 
um, and all this is in a lot more detail in the book, um, the connection between natural aesthetic and golf architecture had been argued for the past 15 years with the emerging arts and crafts movement in England, how that actually related to golf architecture. And one of the reasons, one of the inspirations for my book was actually um, a five-part series by Thomas McWood on Golf Club Atlas called Arts and Crafts Golf. Yeah, of course. Um, and he got ridiculed on there because he couldn't make, he was making all these assumptions, but couldn't actually make the connection between arts and crafts movement and any practitioner in golf. My article, the reason I put that out there first is because I wanted it as a separate highlight because it, I found that relationship. And that was because of looking at all these external influences and looking outside of golf for the first time. Now, Horace Hutchinson was hugely influential, getting back to him. He had written uh, some of the first books on golf and golf architecture, like Hints on Golf. He had dabbled in golf course design, and he was the first editor of Country Life magazine, one of the first publications of talking golf. Um, more importantly, he was a member of the uh, Oxford and Cambridge Golf Suit Society, and through there had keen associations with John Lowe, uh, Harry Colt, and uh, even Bernard Darwin. And when in 1890, he actually left, he thought he accomplished everything in golf. And being, you know, a, a socialite at the time, it was trendy to sort of jump into, have varying interests. Um, so he actually did an apprenticeship for a year under the tutelage of an artist in London called George Frederick Watts, um, who, by all accounts, was actually one of the, he wasn't an arts and crafts practitioner, but he influenced that entire movement significantly. And this was just before that, and Hutchinson was completely immersed in that, that movement for an entire year. And I actually found a book that he had published that most other people overlooked called Portraits of the 80s. Um, and it was actually the last book that Hutchinson published in 1920 that has profiles on all these people, including uh, the Pre-Raphaelites and uh, some of the practitioners from the arts and crafts movement. So, and he, you know, doesn't directly say his relationship with any of them because that's not the purpose of the book. But he, it's obvious, he talks about, he even says, he relates a story where he even talks about his own Watts worship which was his mentor. So he brought this ideology to golf architecture and single-handedly picked some of his friends, Harry Colt being one of them, um, who were doing things that jived with his outlook, which was the evolving social tastes and norms of the time. And it was actually Colt who would merge the strategic and the natural aesthetic at Sunningdale. So he would use his friend John Lowe's principles and, you know, being the um, secretary at Sunningdale would bring those principles there and combine it with a natural aesthetic and would really open people's mind as to what could be done on an inland site. So then you take Colt and look at his influences over Mackenzie, Allison, and bring that to America where I just talked about Donald Ross. And you take that further to Canada 
where you talk about him coming over in 1912 and doing Toronto Golf Club and then Hamilton and influencing a young Stanley Thompson. And you've got the makings of the golden age of golf architecture. And why I find that interesting is if you look at that now and sort of putting those puzzle pieces together, that arts and crafts movement was a complete reaction against the industrial revolution. And if you look at what we're going through now, a lot of, you know, societal tastes revolve around, you know, shop local, craft breweries, farm and to cheeses table. and farm to table. If you look at that now, that really is um, an anti-globalization movement that's happening, which is very much bringing things back home, local, crafted. We're in the same, we're being influenced by the same societal tastes. Right. Well, and, and this goes back to, England. you know, the, the post-war period, the, the golf and society and sports and technology, uh, literature was all influenced by the moment, by the cultural moment of, of where where the, the American and European psyche was at that point. So that's an interesting, I mean, geez, Keith, we could sit here for three hours talking about this. <laughs> I've thought about this too. Yes. I mean, there's, that's a, there's another book. Uh, it's something that I like to explore is, is how golf is, is always a product of, of its cultural time. Um, but we're going to, we're going to have to leave that for the, uh, part two of this yes. podcast, which will be uh, airing sometime uh, around when your book comes out. I think, I think we'll have to get together again. Um, Awesome. So we talked about that that tie in of the history and, and the context of the around you know the, that nineteen to nineteen ten period which you're which you got to. Uh, we talked about you know the quote unquote dark ages. I'm wondering what and I'm going to ask you a couple questions as we walk this out. Uh, what looking toward the future? That's what interests me especially. What would a uh, Keith Cutton original design look like? Uh, I know it's going to be based in classical uh, principles and, and have some uh, historical reverence, but what are there new ideas that you have or, or uh, concepts that you think that still are ripe to be explored? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. Yeah, and, uh, keep it um, to uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that will not be possible. But um, yeah, I think, one thing I loved, I'll just take this back to the Ian Andrew podcast that you just did. And he actually stole, well, he didn't steal, um, his point at the end that we're, that, that the design build and minimalist movement right now is kind of oversaturated with this natural rugged aesthetic. Um, and the, the overuse of width that we're seeing right now, I think, I think we're seeing the culmination of that. Uh, and I pointed, actually, the end of my book finishes with looking to at Mammoth Dunes as and addressing, <laughs> I, make, I make the analogy, you know, um, we, we need to address the elephant in the room, in this case, the mammoth. Right. Because yeah. there's just too much, width is great, but if you look at the fundamentals of golf architecture, all the writings everything we've learned. One thing that we always come back to is variety. And if it's, it's just like the overuse of water, 
I'll go back to the statement, if everything is bold, nothing is bold. If we make every hole wide, um, the fundamental strategy of golf architecture I don't think are there. There has to be the variety. And width is a good thing, but I don't think every site and every course needs to be needs to look the same now saying that moving forward uh talking about you know what i would do is you know there's there's fundamental principles that i think every architect uh we're at the point and this is the point of my book is to understand the fundamental principles that make golf architecture great and employ those but to not get caught up by societal movements and trends and don't be afraid to push the boundaries and there are many courses which which have completely differing aesthetics that are still sound fundamentally you know you look at the heathlands you look at the monterey peninsula um you go to the sand belt of melbourne uh long island you know just the different the variety of courses on long island from you know just taking maidstone and ngla to shinnecock right next door to garden city like they couldn't be more different but fundamentally they're sound and you know to say what i would do on a specific ground that i haven't seen uh would completely disrespect my understanding of how to build a golf course and what i've learned from rod and taking inspiration from the ground and that that that's really where it would come from but I know I wouldn't just fall into whatever socially is the norm right now. There, the, I probably would push it in a different direction than maybe a, a rugged bunker aesthetic. But I could tell you there would be ground contour. There would be a variety of width and variety of bunker sizes and locations of them. Variety of tees, um, some half par holes, some par and a half holes. Um, you know, just the variety of design, that's what I'd be trying to do. Picking any singular aesthetic, I don't think is wise. Do you think this is the kind of the burning question for guys like yourself, younger guys who are going to be the the names in the business over the next 20, 30 years is how to distinguish yourself or how to take the art into a new place? Yeah, I do. I think um, too many people are dubbing this a second golden age. I completely agree with what I heard Ian Andrews say that I don't think, I think we're on the right path, but I don't think we've hit the variety of designs and creative output that was put forth in the 1920s. Um not to say we won't get there, but I think that needs to be in the back of our head that we're not there yet. I think we can't be too eager to pat ourselves on the back. Um, another thing I see is that a lot of people are a little too eager to jump out on their own. I know that worked for Tom Doak, and he may be a, you know, a prodigy of sorts in the way he's able to digest courses and what he was able, the vision he had for the time. Um, I do know that 
I have a lot to learn still from Rod, and I think some of the young guys really need to. And I've had this discussion with uh, with a few guys that I respect, and there needs to be a a reverence to learn from the Bill Cores, the Tom Dokes, the Rod Whitmans, uh, the Gil Hanses, as to what they're doing and what we can learn from them going forward before we try to reinvent the wheel again. The one of the purposes of my book is, you know, if people are dubbing this a second golden age, and that's wonderful. But if society tastes change again for the negative, and what that means, not negative for society, but negative for golf, um, are people, are we just going to follow suit and, you know, do whatever makes us money? Or are we going to do what is good for golf? One of the things I make a, an analogy of in the book is because I have a background as a, um, an environmental planner, uh, I have my stamp as a planner. And one of the things that you do as part of that is you do time under somebody that's in the business. So you do logs. Uh, it's the same thing you would for a landscape architecture and engineer. And then you do a professional examination. And what they look at you for is ethics and standards of practice. And one of the questions that's asked is, what do you think, uh, what are you designing for? What is your purpose? And the correct answer is, your, your objective is to uphold the public interest. And the public interest is what is best for everybody. And I think that really needs to be, golf architecture really needs to have that in the back of their head as to what is best for the site, but also what is best for golf. And that may be pushing the envelope artistically, but the fundamental strategies and ideology that we've been building and that there's been a renaissance of uh, in the last 15, 20 years, we can't lose that again. Yeah, it's such an interesting time in that there is a generation of your generation that's just waiting there and it's been so well trained and there you have a, a reverence for, for history and the knowledge and you've been in design build. And this is not to disparage against, you know, the architects that came up in the eighties and nineties, but clearly they were being trained in, under a, a different system and in a different environment. But you all have seen it work. You've worked on great courses. You've seen great properties. You uh, know how to operate equipment. You understand all that. And, and then we're just waiting for a model of new golf course construction to emerge, something that makes financial sense so we can see all this, these ideas that are in, you know, flowing horizontally right now. We're waiting to see those kind of come out and, and be expressed. But so far, that financial viability doesn't seem to be uh, out there right now. Not, no, to, not to be too depressing. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that that is a you know that but that's been one of the benefits of why the design build model has emerged in recent times. Um, you know, it, it's building. It, it's strengthened by a poor economy, if that makes sense. Because Rod and I can get by on doing a project over two years and giving our heart and soul to it, as opposed to 
the guys that work in an office that need a lot more work to pay the bills. And that's not disparaging anything they do because, you know, I can see what the allure of that model is, having a family of my own now. You're home every night. You know, there's people don't seem to understand either that the design-build model is wonderful, but you need a very large and good team of capable guys if you expect any of them to have a life. Otherwise, you're sitting on site like Rod and I do, you know, for prolonged periods of time, and that could be very tough on your personal life. So there, there, I could see the allure of that other side of the business. Plus, if you're in an office, you're able to cultivate relationships better as opposed to me trying to talk to a client when I'm on a bulldozer. And, you know, there's a professional aura to it. So one thing that people of my generation and specifically me have tried to do is diversify. I want to be, as Mackenzie had said, you know, golf architecture is a new science, you know, where you need to be part physicist, biologist, you know, engineer, all these different things. Um, I've been trying to do that since I was 17 and having the planning background and having my own companies, drafting design, master's in landscape architecture, and now putting the book out to really dive into myself and you know, broaden myself as a historian. I think all these things are, are key. And I think it's something that I'll take this back to literature. There's been a standard set now by our mentors that, you know, this is the bar. We need to beat this. That disappeared kind of after World War II. The other thing that disappeared was the accountability. You know, you look at, I relate, again, I'll relate this back to um, golf architecture, needing the checks and balances between professional practice and literature. The 1920s were so good because the heads of all the magazines were directed by golf architects that would debate what was going on. There was a, there was a, there was a sort of peer review element that was happening that really pushed everybody to be better. And with the internet, blogs, podcasts like this, it's happening again. And I think it's going to push the, the discipline to new heights. And it has to, because there's that check and balance relationship that's going on again that's really holding us accountable. And I think that that's maybe the, the biggest takeaway of all, that that is so important. Right. Speaking of peer review, uh, I ask this question to almost everybody. What modern golf course uh, would you choose to play over and over and over again? One that you were not involved in the construction of. Oh, I'd have to. Well, I'll, the, my golf geeky answer would be Sandhills, um, just because of what that did for me when that when that opened in '95, um, and seeing all the the pictures and the the social change that that started within the industry that is really what had me looking toward Cork Renshaw and then what had me find um Rod Whitman 
and pursue that as the way I wanted to build golf courses. Um, another modern feat that Rod actually helped build uh, was Friar's Head. So that would be my my B would be Friar's Head on Long Island, which I just think is exceptional. Yeah, no doubt. But Sand, Sand Hills, I mean, I don't know how you could ever get tired of playing that place. Interestingly, I, that's the first course that's gotten two votes. So Sand Hills is in the lead amongst <laughs> amongst architects. Uh, okay, here's the last one. Same question, but the court but the course had to have been built in the 1950s. 1950s. Hmm. A tough one. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um I would have said before it was changed. Um, Dick Wilson's work at Royal Montreal was actually quite good before it was changed. Uh, and I believe he did, I believe he did the black, blue, and red courses there in 59. So I believe that counts. Okay, I'll go with you. I, I can't check that <laughs> right now. It sounds right. I def- yeah. You ought to know but, if anybody... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I'll I'll take it on a Canadian, Canadian path okay, there. Cool, you know. But those were recently; those were changed recently, and I haven't just hearing the uh, the feedback from some people I respect. I just haven't been back there because I'm worried I won't be happy. <laughs> did they do that in house, or did they hire somebody? No, they hired. I'd rather not say who it was, but uh, I'm sure, it's, yeah, you can find was, out if, was, if anybody's curious. Yeah. If, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> well, Keith, I'm always surprised how fast this time goes. Uh, like I, I wasn't. Yeah. I really think we could we could stay here for another hour at least. But uh, with that uh, in mind, I'll have you back on another time. When do you think the book is going to come out? Uh, it should be sli- well. It's slated for the summer. Uh, it'll probably be late July, maybe early August. Awesome. Well, I'll be all um, over that. I hope everybody else checks it out. Where? Uh, uh, I'm sure they can get it through your website. Keep che- keep checking back yeah. on Keith's website, and I'm sure there'll be news of that uh, publication coming out over time. Yeah, within the next um, probably two weeks, I'll be starting pre-sales on the website, um, and there'll be a, a written description and more, more detailed of what the what's involved with the book. Um, the book's quite extensive. There's two parts. There's the first part A, which is the first part of the book, which um, sort of goes decade by decade through the evolution of golf course architecture and looks at all these uh, influences that we've been talking about, you know, over the last hour. Um, and then part two is the profiles which help to make this evolution. Um, so I profile 54 architects, 12 writers, and five owner members, um, which really contributed to that evolution. So you sort of have the mismatch up front of them, how they all intermingled and how they were affected by society, economy, wars, and uh, other allied art forms. And then the second where it's broken apart in individuals. Uh, but again, it's, 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 not, it's not looking in detail at specific courses. It's looking at specific people and why they did what they did. Right. And then again... Uh, it'll, it should be out in July and it's, it's not going to be a, a thin book. This is something that I've been working on for five years. It started with a thesis and I think we're looking somewhere. It'll be at least 356 pages. 
with plans, photos, um, and quite a wealth of information. So I think it's going to be hopefully quite yeah, a Yeah, I hope we teased it enough to get everybody's interest up. <laughs> uh, anybody who listens to this, I'm sure, will, will want to buy it. Uh, and when I heard you writing that book, I couldn't wait to have you on. I heard about it a couple of months ago. I think I saw it in an interview you did, you did with somebody else. And I said, well, you know, he's talking my language. we got to discuss this. So it was great to have you on, finally get you on the podcast. And when the book comes out, we'll revisit it and maybe get a little more in-depth uh, into what you've written about and some of these other concepts that we didn't get to. Wonderful. Thanks, Derek. Yeah, it was, it was a lot All of fun. Right. Well, hey, appreciate you having me. Enjoy the rest of your winter at home before you uh, set off again, <laughs> and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks, Keith. Wonderful. Thanks, Derek. Can I just say, Canadians are great. That's two weeks in a row they've showed up and just killed it here. And then before that, Rod Whitman, outstanding. I've got to get Jeff Minge on the show. Uh, he'd be great to talk to you. I wonder if he'd do this. I remember reading uh, Keith Cutton on Twitter once, uh, kind of on this topic of the dark ages and, and how golf courses were, were built during that era. And he said that, if I'm remembering correctly, he excuses the architects from that period, but not their golf courses. And we discussed, uh, as you just heard, uh, the reasons why the architects from the, the late 40s into the 50s and even into the 60s were operating the way they did and the cultural frame of reference that influenced their thinking uh, about how golf courses should be built. I still think the question out there is, what is the biggest difference between the courses of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, say, and how golf courses are built now? Is it the shaping, the shaping and the techniques that are used to build golf courses, how they're, the, the two are on different ends of the spectrum, or is it the architectural concepts themselves? I think at some point in the 1970s and maybe even into the 80s, you kind of get the worst of both sides of that. But beginning uh, with Robert Trent Jones, he was, in my opinion, pretty solid on strategy early on. He might have strayed from that later, but he and Dick Wilson presented pretty pretty classic uh, formulations of strategy, but it on golf courses that didn't quite look or feel the same as they did in the 1920s. Keith Cutton was pretty adamant that it wasn't the technology and the machinery that we should blame for that, and of course not. It's it's the operator and not the machines, just like it's the golfer and not the club that uh, is to be blamed for bad results. But on the other hand, every new technology goes through a period of experimentation and trial and error, and there's a learning curve that must be explored uh, before the best applications of it are realized and fully utilized. And I think that's, in my opinion, that was happening a lot in in that first decade or, or more after World War II. And the farther and farther away they strayed from the old style of building courses, though, as Keith points out, the more that style was forgotten. One final note, um, I just wanted to re- come back around. Um, he Keith mentioned uh, somebody named Tom McWood. The late Tom McWood was one of the earliest and most reliable posters on golfclubatlas.com and kind of an example of how the internet age allows for expertise to come to light from all different places that normally wouldn't have access to uh, dissemination of information. Pre-internet, a guy like Tom McWood, who passed away a number of years ago, would um, have sort of been a hobbyist historian, I guess. 
and more or less constrained to the traditional pathways of writing and publishing, which is very difficult to crack into. But Golf Club Atlas gave him a forum to express and test and present uh, a considerable amount of historical research that he undertook and to let his analysis be read by other people, other golf course architecture enthusiasts, and uh, they reacted to that. And through his postings and that dialogue, McWood, as much as anyone on that website and maybe beyond, helped move forward the discussion uh, and our knowledge of the history and importance of turn of the century and golden age architecture and moved it up to where we are now beyond broad brushstrokes and into a finer level of detail than we otherwise would have had. Not everything that he wrote and posted was accepted. Uh, there were some legendary contentious fights between he and, and other factions, but he was always level-headed, very meticulous, very analytical, and whether you agreed with his findings or not, his writings were invaluable in getting us to a place where we have a greater understanding and appreciation of golf course architecture and its history. He's gone now, but I know uh, he's very dearly missed on that website and beyond. So I just felt like wrapping that up a little bit on that topic. Uh, his writings are still uh, on golfclubatlas.com if you want to go check him out. His five-piece essay on the arts and craft movement as it relates to golf course architecture, I believe, is still posted. So if that topic that Keith was uh, speaking about interests you, there's a little bit more to it there, as well as Keith's article that's on his website, cuttengolf.com. want to thank Keith Cutton very much for joining me. That was stimulating and interesting. Hope we can do it again sometime. Check out feedtheball.com as always for new podcast episodes and other golf course writings. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, as you know, at feedtheball. Check me out there. I love it for you to stream or download this podcast uh, through the website. You can also download it on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google+. Please subscribe to that. And it's an easy thing to do. Just hit the plus button when on your phone or other device. More importantly, leave a star rating if you like, or if you don't like the show, don't leave one. But if you like the show, leave a star rating uh, and reviews. You can also leave comments for me on my website. I always appreciate the feedback. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'll have another show up next week. And as always, I want to thank the Sundogs and Will and Lee Haraway for the bumper music. And until next time, happy trails. Happy trails.